Hello and welcome to Counter Rook Pod episode 11. I am doing a Dave Flatman on it, and what I mean by that is I'm actually recording from the confines of my 4x4. Only difference being Dave Flatman drives an up to date modern Range Rover, I'm driving a 7 year old Jeep Wrangler. But I must admit, the acoustics in this area is actually a lot better than any space in my in my apartment so listen we'll go with it how the hell are you you doing well it hasn't been a busy week for the old mlr i mean the podcast is dedicated to all things major league rugby but there hasn't been a whole lot of rugby taking place we've had the uh, capital selects travel now from all from all the way from new orleans and play the Houston Sabercats and I must admit they gave a really good account of themselves. Bear in mind this is a team made up of amateurs from the Washington Virginia area where they've traveled over gotten together it's almost like a barbarian side where they've assembled maybe not so long in advance and they've traveled and they've played against a, uh, a very good Nola goals side it seems. So I was curious to see how they would have done against a Houston Sabercats. Sabercats as you know would have played a lot that would have been their fifth game on the trot. So bear in mind, five games on the trot, you're playing a lot of rugby together, you've done a lot of preseason, and then you're playing up against a team that has only been together for about maybe, I would say the best part of three weeks, four weeks. So the, the capital selects really, really acquitted themselves very well. Now, they, they lost, and they lost pretty well, but bear in mind, like I said, all of the factors that were in favor for Houston Sabercats it was a uh, it was a really really uh, good performance by the, uh, the likes of the Capital Select side. It's funny we've talked more about Capital Select side in this podcast than we have, um, than any other team really, because essentially we haven't really come across many other teams. Nora Gold are the only team that's actually put a game up on Facebook Live, and to me that's kind of bizarre because when you look at the podcast I'm doing, I've done some analytics on it from SoundCloud. You can buy a feature where it allows you to tell you who's listening and where they're listening from. You know, for some reason, there's people listening from Saudi Arabia, Hong Kong, China, uh, South Korea, Japan, and, you know, these people would love to catch up on some of the games that are being played, but they can't because there's no live or there's no kind of footage of it. So for Nola Gold put the game up on Facebook, I'm sure they got themselves many more fans from outside the states, not just outside Louisiana, because of that kind of innovative approach to kind of streaming their games. Now I say innovative, it's not that innovative really, Facebook Live is not a new technology, it's probably about two years old at max. So my call out is that, why can't we see other six teams doing something similar? It'd be really, really good. I mean, the Houston Sabercats, for all of their really, really hard and valiant work off the field. I would love to be able to see them live on Facebook. I'm, I'm not able to travel to Houston, I'm not able to attend the games per se, so you know, I would love to be able to experience that game some way or form. It's phenomenal listening to the likes of Grant Cole from This Is Texas Rugby. He's really good at kind of getting the atmosphere going pre, post and during the game. However, my original point stands, it'd be nice to get some games on Facebook live at least. And it's quite surprising that Nola Gold are the only team that are doing that. Now, moving on, I actually had the the joy of going up to Seattle there in Washington State last Thursday to last Monday. Purpose being was I wanted to get out onto the mountains and uh, do a bit of snowboarding. 
So a buddy of mine who I was in college with in Dublin, who's living in Vancouver, travelled down with, uh, to pick me up and uh, plan was to kind of, you know, have a few have a few beers a Thursday night and um, get up on the mountains early Friday morning, Saturday morning. Anybody that knows Washington, anybody that knows Seattle, the weather is very similar actually to the climate back home in Ireland. Very misty, very grey, very dull and it constantly rains. So it was no surprise I suppose to people listening that we actually got rained out of it uh, on the first and second day and anybody that's kind of snowed, snowboard or skied in that kind of weather it's just really really uncomfortable. So. I'll be completely honest with you, we absolutely toured the back arse out of Seattle and went on the beer instead and I'm not joking, I'm feeling fairly rough now uh, come Monday, just about recovering today. So look, I wanted to kind of make the opportunity while I was there, so I did reach out to the likes of Seattle Seawolves, would they be interested in me coming down and visiting the complex down in Starfire, but uh, I guess once again, note uh, basically to no avail and uh, no response so look I don't know what's going on there but I'd love to visit them I'd love to talk to them at some stage guys on the podcast today we do have a really really interesting fella from Houston Sabercats his name is Justin Allen and I tweeted yesterday that he's got a really astute rugby brain and the reason being is we actually end up just chatting all things rugby not necessarily how things are going in Houston but just the game itself in general how it should be played for about 20 minutes before he moved on to about how he got into rugby, his various clubs he played for, where he's played and how he's loving life in Houston, which he very much is. Really, really intelligent guy, Justin Allen from Houston Sabercats, second row. Uh, he actually played, he started there in second row against the Capital Selects and he spoke to me yesterday about how he hasn't got the schedule yet for the Chicago Lions game, the game that they're playing this weekend in Constellation Field. but. Without further ado, this is Justin Allen from the Houston Sabercats. He's also a fellow Wexford man as well, so also myself being from Wexford, it's, it's quite nice knowing that at least there's one man on the field, if there's at least one man talking shite completely off the field. That's me. Anyway, here's Justin. I'm delighted to be joined with a fellow Wexford man and a fellow Irish man who's playing his trade down in Houston with the Sabercats, Justin Allen. Uh, Justin, you're very welcome to Counter a Pod. How are things going? Not too bad, not too bad at all. Keeping busy, as you do. Yeah, you were just talking to me before we came on here that you're just back in from training, cooking a bit of dinner, and then you're back out again. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty hectic schedule. We're in three, four times a week, depending on, what, on your position and all, and body composition, so that if you need to do fat burners or need to bulk you could have extra sessions and so on and so forth so throughout the week you're kept pretty on your feet don't really get much chance of a rest it's eat train sleep repeat really what stage are you at now are you bulking or are you, sh- are you shredding weight i'm in the bulk so I'm, I'm looking to hit up about 275 roughly and i'm down at 263 it comes down to like there's certain things that obviously you completely stay away from it's more it's not how much you eat it's more what you eat specifically but i'm on i'm on upwards of six thousand calories a day which is a bit mental yeah yeah (laughs) that is a lot that is a lot of food to consume so justin i'm very curious about your story and how you became um essentially a professional rugby player because if i'm right in saying you had age grade representation with Ulster up as far as the 18s. Would you mind telling the listeners how you got from, say, underage rugby at Wexford to where you are now? It all started, I was about 
I started playing rugby when I was 12. It all became, it all came from a conversation over dinner with a friend of the family who just mentioned Wexford Wanderers. Um, I was quite a big child growing up, so they reckoned that I had, he was like, you're a big fella, you should give it a shot. And I was like, yeah, I'll get involved with it to, to get fit for Gaelic football. So I didn't really think about focusing on it. And first game I ever played, I ended up getting a hat-trick and kind of fell in love with it from there. I actually live literally about 500 metres from Wex Wanderers, so I'm, <laughs> oh, wow. I'm trying to think now, you're what, 20, 24? 22. 22, yeah, I'm 28, so we would have never crossed paths when you're down there, I, but uh, yeah, I, I played for Wex Wanderers uh, men's team, actually, for one or two seasons when I was in UCD, so, so then I know, I know you went up north then, so you went up to play initially with Letterkenny, right? Yes, family moved house up to Donegal and I ended up, because I'd kind of fallen in love with the whole sport, I wanted to find a rugby club and Letterkenny was the closest one to me. So I signed up with them and I spent three seasons there um, when I got picked up by Ulster at under 15. So I was through that system for the next couple of years. But after one year of doing the Ulster... Um, academy set up the youth side of things I got a a coach from Portadown Rugby Club which is about the dead centre of Northern Ireland he came down to a training session because he heard heard about me Mm. and he ended up picking me up and signing me on with them Um, which was a fantastic opportunity for me as it meant that he would work with some former Ireland camp members. I don't know if you've ever heard of Kieran O'Kane, one yep. of those kind of guys. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, so they, to have them kind of guide my path in a way was a huge draw for me. And then they helped out with travel because it was a 111-mile round trip. What? Um, he, yeah, yeah. From Lennon to Bordan, took two and a half hours one way. Oh, I'm guessing you trained, what, Tuesdays, what, Tuesdays Thursdays, match on a Saturday? Just Thursdays and Saturdays because of the time commitment and because I was still in high in school. Like I was in high school, I would have been I was fifteen through eighteen when I played for them, sitting my leaving cert. Yeah. So I couldn't commit full time with them, but they were willing to make the compromise as long as I was training hard and doing my own stuff um, away from away from the club, which actually was quite beneficial because it meant on a Tuesday I could train with the GAA. And their fitness levels were far exceed anything that you'll see back home at that age level. So that was actually really beneficial for me. So on a Tuesday, I'd be doing my GAA, and then on the Thursday, I'd be doing the rugby. It's certainly a sport that kind of really is brilliant for your not just your agility, but also like just your your overall stamina. You're going hard at it then for three years. Your junior, junior search, you're leaving search, playing uh, and traveling quite a distance. At that stage, was rugby as a career considered as a serious option, or were you thinking you'll just kind of go with it and see what happens? Well, up until Portadown came into the picture, it was more just a fun thing to do with your friends. Mm. However, I had a couple conversations with my coach, and then some people, representatives from Ulster, and a guy who used to work with the, within the Ireland setup. They came talking to me and actually earmarked me and two others um, from our team who had the possibility of making an Ireland camp if we kept progressing the way that we were going. 
so I played with, he's a kid coming through the Ulster system now, he's just broken into the team, um, Caleb Montgomery, so we were like earmarked to do the national setup over that way. So you're 22 now, who wore the, um, I suppose, the second rows that you were competing with at underage level from the other provinces? But I mean, competition obviously was quite steep, obviously, for second rows at that time. Yes, yes it was. As you can see now, the current crop coming through, there's yeah. a lot of competition in that area within Ireland as a nation. They've got quite a good stockpile ready to go at any time, really. Within the Ulster setup, um, I was becoming frustrated with it because I was doing quite well and I was being... I was given three Man of the Matches in, the row, in a row and they were marking me quite highly for it. But I'd get Man of the Match and then I'd get dropped that the following game and that happened three times in a row and nobody could figure tell me why. I never had an explanation or anything like that. And I was actually on the verge of quitting the sport altogether. Right. Just ready to leave and walk away from it after all that commitment and time and everything I'd thrown towards it. And... You just weren't enjoying the rugby or was it more just because of frustration from the lack of feedback? Frustration. I mean, if I was getting a man of the match, you know, that tends to be that you'd be selected for the, at least the squad, if not the starting team for the next game, or it's a good indicator that you've got potential for it. But then to be dropped from the entire squad and then brought back in the next game and for that to happen multiple times, it's just very confusing. You don't, without any feedback, there's no real indicator of what you're doing wrong what you're doing right what it is you need to improve on and if you're ever going to make it through or not and it just gets a bit overwhelming really when there's that that much of a conflict of emotions going on absolutely yeah i can imagine it's very challenging for a player especially if you go from the highs of being you know awarded man and match to missing out in squad selection so how old were you when you decided that you know i need to take a different route here if I want to pursue, I mean, was your choice of pursuing New Zealand because you figured that there could be a career in this or was it just you needed something different? Well, I actually got called up for the HSAA All-American under-18s team, which is what I, which is what prevented me from quitting. So my coach at Porter Down, uh, his name's Ian Cook, he got in contact with somebody within the US um, rugby frame, sent off an email saying that I was an American eligible player and that this was going on. However, he thought he had great, I had potential to fit into their system. Mm. And I had no idea any of this was going on. So it comes up to August of the following year because the Ulster games were at the end of the previous season, so about May, June. And he's he was pressing me hard over that summer to ensure that I came back and come back. And with about a week before pre-season started up, he was like, I really think you should come up to this next training. I've got some big news for you. And I'm, I, I'm obviously completely ignorant of this. So I go on up there and he turns around. He, tell me, he tells me that the American coaches have actually sent... So they had a tournament in England at the time. Um... They go do regional competition over there to see and scout um, potential recruits. Yeah. And the coach of the HSAA 18s, who's originally from Northern Ireland himself, was going, just happened to be the coach going over to England. So he was stopping back in Northern Ireland to visit some family before shooting back to the States. Right. Taking the opportunity. And he... 
he came to watch a single training session at Portadown to watch me and he left me with a list of targets I had to hit conditioning wise strength and stamina etc mm-hmm. but said if I hit those targets I would be more than welcome to go to Argentina for the two and a half week tour wow I guess the blinkers are back on and the focus is back uh, going to make it a go of it at a rugby all of a sudden yeah 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 completely going from one one yeah. extreme to the other I was like oh okay this, this isn't really going my way to have been invited to an international tour of a South American country and I come personally from a very like very poor background and I'd never left Ireland up until that point so to have an opportunity to go see the world that was it that was that was like the crux for me was I'm gonna go see this I'm gonna go do that and that, that became my life from my leaving Sir year that was it that was everything I focused on went out there was absolutely loved it um, I, I, some of the current Eagles, like Ben Seema, Hanko Germishes, I would have played with them mm. out there. And then I, after the tour finished, so my sisters live in San Diego, and I ended up moving out with her for a couple of months, came back to, went back home to Ireland, back to Donegal, and there was nothing really on there in regards to rugby or jobs or anything like that. So I signed myself up to a agency website where it just kind of like have these clubs you put yourself on it and these clubs get in contact with you and i was picked up by a team in christchurch called new brighton so how old were you at the time justin when you did this i would have been 19 19 so it was either this or potentially university but you took the risk and you went down to christchurch for how 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 long were you in christchurch for i was out there for eight months so i got I left here, I left Ireland in February, and I came, went over to England in August. Absolutely loved it out there. It's yeah. a completely different way of life. And the rugby side of things is, I have a phrase that I, I figure sums up the difference between your Northern Hemisphere teams and the Southern Hemisphere teams. It would be very much that the Southern Hemisphere teams look to win games, whereas the Northern look to not lose them. That's actually very relevant. We look at the Six Nations and just the fear in the way the Irish guys played, you know, 40 odd phases, very narrow approach to attacking uh, the French line. And it was like that. There was, it was the fear of losing that game rather than the joy of winning the game. So that's interesting. Yeah, it seems to be, well, down there, like, I guess in Northern Hemisphere, specifically Europe, you've got a lot of other sports competing to be the number one for your nation. So the only way to compete with those sports is to be successful, which is why why it's it's so driven, so focused on results. Whereas if you look at the New Zealand, Australian, South African setups, those guys are playing it from the age of five, yeah. five, six, and they play it for fun. I mean, they'll go down to the park and have a game of touch just just because they can, because the sun's out. Whereas you don't, you get more football, soccer, those kind of things in the uh, northern northern hemisphere. Yeah, it's true. You have guys just knocking around with the ball, you know, playing a bit of footy in, in their bare feet, and it's just like they're doing it for the, they're not even keeping the score, just doing it for the love of the game. And at the same time, though, they're still developing that kind of core skill set of being able to, you know, catch pass and and um, and run and run really good lines as well. It's just it's inherent with the especially with the New Zealanders as well. Did you develop a lot of your own skill sets when you're down in Christchurch? Well, yes. So when I left New Zealand, I had a bit of a reputation for being a, this is a quote from my coach, 
I was a second row who had hands like a ten. Those, the, <laughs> that was something that he once said to me. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. And um, I, I was expecting something else, but I mean, fair enough, good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but when I went down there, that kind of like open, open, continuous play game kind of suits my style. In the regard that I like to see open, fast games, I like to try and keep the ball alive as much as I can. But to go down there for our training, we didn't, we did not do a single scrum in training until the end of the season. That's no scrum training, which was, which was highly, highly confusing to someone coming out from the Ulster setup where you would do a training session every, you'd do a scrum session for 10 minutes of every session. You'd probably scrum till the cows come home, like. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Like, our strength of, our strength was a big scrum. We'd have a big scrum. We used to, and then down there, it's like, no, we want to play quick. So we won't focus on this, but you would start off every training session with a game of touch. Every training session started with a game of touch, and half the time the coaches weren't the one running that. We would just start off our warm-ups having a game of touch. Um, handling drills, where your lines are going to be, how you're going to perfect your lines. It became more about reading the game and reading and thinking two steps ahead more so than thinking your set plays. So you're, if you're going around, as a forward, if you're going around the corner, you've already decided, you've already got the calls in your head, you know what's going to happen, you're then preempting what is going to follow the play after you're currently going through. So you're always having to think that little bit more ahead. I was going to ask you then, you're not so, are you not, you're not so reliant then on, say, set piece or starter plays or any of that kind of stuff, because like as you, as you alluded to, it's heads up rugby, it's play what's in front of you. Yes, very much so. One of the things that our team specifically was very good at was if we got in behind the defence, was keeping the ball alive and managing to keep it going. Mm. And then the scramble defence, because you were able to play like that in offence, your scramble defence then becomes quite, quite good down to the fact that you're then looking to see what they're going to do. This is something that we would do, so you're trying to defend what you would do, if that makes sense. I've never heard it like that. I've never analysed defence like that before by demonstrating what you would do in behind the lines, you know, keeping the ball alive, you know, off the cuff. You're actually learning subconsciously how to develop your own skills in a scramble defence. That's very interesting. If you're running through and you're looking to get that offload or you're looking to go down to the ground and pop it up, as a defensive player, if you've got that mindset of this is what you do in offence, what's the first thing that you're going to look to shut down? Is you're going to... the first the first thing is stop the offload. Second thing is stop him being able to pop it up off the ground. And then the third thing is you're going to set that line. Because if they're breaking through and they're making incredible yardage from it, it's going to be very difficult to stop and set that line and then be able to bounce forward if they're just keeping the ball alive. You're not going to have the opportunity to do it. So you, it then becomes how do I stop this ball from being played? And then... What do I organise after that? You think Irish teams in particular, or not Irish teams, but say Northern Hemisphere teams, we have such a strong emphasis on our set pieces and, like I said, our, our starter plays that when it comes to kind of anticipating the what the other, what the opposition are going to do when there's a clean line break, it's one area, it's one aspect of the game that just we have, we're light years behind the Southern Hemisphere teams. Uh, you could go, you could say that, yeah. I mean... Yes, we're getting it's better. Being able to read it, it I, I'd say it's it's being able to read the game at the speed that they do down down south, especially in New Zealand, because the speed at which they play 
this not so much the speed at which they play is blowing you away a million miles it's the speed at which they play consistently over 80 minutes as well like yeah. if you look at any the past couple of years with the specifically the all blacks they don't tend to blow you off the park in the first 60 but what they do is they grind you and grind you and then if they're within five points of you with 20 minutes left to go that's when they start to pick it up because they, they've been reserved they've got that fitness but also that awareness and able to read when you're starting to flag Interesting. which probably comes from because so much more able to be fluid with what they're doing instead of being in rigid structure I mean if you want to look at it if you want to see it as a fault for, for a better term or a lack of flexibility when Italy played England last year in the Six Nations it took 40 minutes for the English to be able to adapt to that committing no man to the rook scenario and creating that no offside line yeah whereas if you look at the Chiefs who were the first team to do that down in New Zealand it took five minutes for the opposition to find a remedy maybe not maybe not stop it entirely but they were able to think on their feet and somewhat deal with the new issue that had been put before them which was simply just pick and go commit their defenders take them on yeah yeah, because they, they don't they do have a lot of strategies and a lot of structure to their game, but they're taught from such a young age to play the game. You're gonna play the game for the love of it. You're not gonna play the strategy, you're gonna play the game. Do you think we overtrain our youth? Do you think we overcoach our youth to the nth degree when it comes to Yes and no. I think it depends on what age group you're targeting and which one you would be talking about specifically. Right, yeah, I mean, I guess when you go to full-size pitches in Ireland, in a way, it's usually around the age of 13, 12, 13, when you go on the 14s. That's probably the time, certainly in Ireland, where structure uh, surrounding scrums and lineouts and generally multi-phase play kind of comes into it. So I guess at that age, do you think, do you think there's a there's a... I'd say you're looking more at 15, 16 is where that starts to come in yeah. in regards to, I know full well, like, if you're proper like and roll kicks a ball or does something like that, you know, they get absolutely ridiculed, no matter if it comes off or not. Yeah. However, if, you know, if, they're, if they don't do something that's expected, if they don't stick to the system, they can be, they can be given an absolute bollocking for it. That's true. Because of the fact, no, you didn't stick to the system. And so, I mean, if you look at games... 10 years ago when you had the likes of Brian O'Driscoll O'Gara um, O'Connell I mean he used to do stupid stuff when he first started he was quite flurry. then he became known as a solid aggressive machine and that's what the game's kind of developed into now if you look at players now they're heavier they're beefier um, I'd say the best example would be let's go O'Driscoll and Bastero mm. it would be more skillful flair he would try things off the cuff Bastard, you know what you're going to get. He's going to smash you. He's going to smash you through. He's going to try and smash through. And that's what the game's become now. It's more of a, I believe they've redefined it from a contact to a crash sport. Coupled with it's the more, fact that the array of skills have, prob- have probably diminished as well. I mean, the famous example of a second row is, uh, you know, John Eales down in Australia. He used to kick conversions and penalties for Australia. He even kicked it, I think he even kicked in the World Cup, in the World Cup back in 1999. But, yeah, I definitely agree. I think you're looking at more specified roles for each player, but the knock-on effect is that the array of skills is somewhat diminished, certainly in certainly in some regions of, of the world. But I do want to get back to your own story. You're now finishing up in Christchurch. You went back to San Diego, hung out with your sister for a couple of months. 
went back to went back home and there wasn't much on what happened then okay so i live with my sister in san diego after the american tour the second american tour um so the first american tour came when i was 17 and then i had one more year of high school left so i went back to school stayed playing port down and then went off on the second tour then stayed in san diego went back to ireland with nothing on then went out to new zealand while i was out in new zealand um i met a guy good real good mate we've become really good mates through it he knew of a club in england who were semi-professional but they were near oxford which and he, he knew the lecturer who i ended up having an interview with to get in onto it and ended up going to university there over that great um so it became at the same time i so this was a point in my life when i would have been just about to turn 20 um, and I had to make a choice whether I would be pursuing rugby full-time because a team from France had come in with an offer, which was a fairly good offer, and then the team in England were also interested in me. So I, I had to make a decision, and at that age, I figured, because I wasn't at that time in an academy whereby you're looked after, you've got your on a map. I was an Irish boy in New Zealand trying to make it, but without the context to do so. Yeah. So... I chose to go to university, get some sort of education behind it that would be viable to go with the career. And then after I would finish university, I would go off to go back to rugby, try and get a professional contract somewhere and go through that. So that was the plan and that was the decision that I chose. So I ended up over there and I left. I actually left that club in my second year of university to go across to a team in Reading. Right. They were Reading Enzians, and they would be the team I would... When I when I look back on my time in England, they would be the team that I would associate with most. Absolutely love my time there. They're very much a club that came close to my values of bringing up through youth and that, that system of starting in the community and then bringing up through it. Interesting. Were they like a semi-professional team? Yes, so they were playing in National 2 South. Okay. Um, they were based in Reading, was there, a uh, link, was there a link to London Irish? Yes, so we had a few boys on loan from London Irish would come down and play, play. I think, our 10. Actually, funnily, funnily enough, Connor Murphy, so the nine here at Houston Sabercats, yeah. he played with our main rivals. Oh, no doubt. Did you get a few uh, tasty digs in him, like when he was playing against them, and he kind of nice little uh, let him know who's boss? Little rival digs into the shoulder, into the ribcage? Wouldn't have to. The results spoke, spoke for it instead, <laughs> which I like to write them up every now and again. But, um, yeah, so that was that was quite a funny link to find out yeah. um, when I got over this way. Um, and then I finished off my contract with them, yeah. just as uni wrapped up as well. And I, I come to that point where I had to go out and find something. So I, again, put myself onto a load of agencies, like trying to find something, just put myself out there, basically broadcasting what I'd done. This, I was available, see, see what came around. Interestingly, I nearly moved out to Australia instead of this. Nearly ended up down in Sydney playing, but then I got a phone call from Justin Fitzpatrick, who's the head coach of yeah. the Sabercats. So Justin was actually the first person I ever interviewed. I have a lot of time for Justin. He's um, he's he's creating something quite special down in Houston, it seems. Let's talk about present day and life as a Houston Sabercats player. You've experienced, on the count of it, 
three different countries playing when it comes to playing rugby. This is your fourth. There's cultural differences, no doubt. In terms of the setup, in terms of how things are running and the organisational structure at Sabercats, for those looking in, it seems like it's the most well-oiled machine in terms of your promotional work, your crowd attendances, you know, the results are going for the most part your way. Is that how you feel things are going? Yes, very much so. Um, the biggest thing that I would say about the Houston setup right now is it isn't actually what we are doing, but it's how the community has responded to us. Um, if you go up to any person in the street and they've heard about rugby, the backing you get from them, they're excited. Like every person that we've talked to are they are so excited that there's actually, that this is happening. Um, as an Irishman, obviously, you meet a lot of expats abroad, and every single one of them that's come off so far, as, as soon as we heard that there was a team, we're going to get involved, they want to get tickets. Even guys who've been in Houston their entire lives, like local boys, they've heard about the sport. They're not too sure what it is, but somebody's told them about it. They want to get involved, and it's just it's been absolutely phenomenal, the backing that we've received. Um, as for what we're doing, it's a very, very slick operation. Justin's done a wonderful job, as have all the backroom staff here in regards to what goes on on a daily basis. I mean, no doubt, if, if you're following the team in any way, shape or form, you've seen the promotional, the social media side of it, the promotional side of things. And without without those working in behind the scenes, that just wouldn't be there. Yeah. Without having those foundations, we, we would be we wouldn't be able to do what we do as smoothly as we do it. I guess, you know, for those listening to this podcast, you and I kind of were texting back and forth last week about this, and, you know, you really kind of echoed what you wrote down. I mean, the, the promotional work done by Sabercats is just unquestionably, by far, the best promotional work any club can do. And you guys are reaping the uh, benefits. You're creating a very, and what is hopefully a long and sustainable fan base. Can we talk about the games, Justin? Um, you had a good win against the Capital Select, and that game was very interesting for um, one particular reason. The Select played against Nola Gold. So as a barometer, which of course you can never take pre-seasons as, but as a barometer, if, if you will, this was a game which showed if Nola put up a, a pretty much a cricket score against from Capital, likewise yourselves... So it seems to me that you know things look somewhat evenly matched. How did you feel about the game itself? Well, credit for Capital Select because in the first half they were they were incredibly physical. That was something that we talked about as a club. The one thing that we knew they would bring to the table is physicality, and that they they stuck behind that, and they had a real heart and drive behind them themselves that was great to see and great to play against. For us, it was a strange game. It was very much a game of two halves in that first half, because I believe we scored 35 points in the second half alone, which kind of gives an indication of how we can play when we play our game. Whereas in the first half, we got a bit complacent. We scored really early on, and mindsets went a bit went a bit um, soft. However, I think it shows this team, the way that we finished the game out, going hard right through to the last 80 shows that we don't ever lie down, if that makes sense, yeah. in this regard. We, yeah. we, we will push ourselves until that last minute, as I think we proved against Jim Spaylor. I think as we proved against that, again, keep going right until the very end. 
And when we played Uruguay to score in the 80th minute against the team, I mean, every week we've shown that we don't want to stop, that the game's not over until the game is over, until there's no time left to play it, which is to have that heart and drive behind it is a fantastic thing for those watching, as well as to experience it and know that no matter what, nobody in that in that matchday squad is, or within the whole setup as a unit are going to give up. I wonder, I mean, again, it's me on looking from afar. You guys are playing a lot of rugby in the pre-season. What's the feeling of player burnout? Because it is a hot topic, especially in the Aviva and the top 14. You guys have played more games than anybody, essentially, now at this stage. Seattle Seawolves are playing their first game, their first pre-season game this Saturday. You guys have got, on my last count, I think, what, three, three or four games under the belt now? Five. Five. What's the opinion there about squad, managing your squad and squad depth? Are you guys resting up? It's, it's probably a hard question for you guys to answer. And I fully understand that you're not going to say we're playing too many games. Um, but it, it's something that maybe was is, was put to me in a question on the pod like about player burnout and probably something that I'm closely looking at you guys going how is this going to be managed throughout the course of the year so I don't know if you want to come in on that but I personally I think honestly we have we have the balance just right so we do have quite it is quite a long season if you look at it from the outside in however there's a lot of rotation going on um, there's a lot of players getting it gives the ability to have everyone is getting an opportunity to show themselves for the upcoming MLR season it's a way of doing that and managing the time that so far has actually worked out really really well um, I mean if you look at it in March we get three weeks off then we've um, we've two more preseason then we get another two weeks off and then the MLR starts so we actually have a five week break in that month and a half time or in that two-month time period that would could be seen almost as a complete refresher anyway. But, um, I mean, the work that we're doing off the pitch, so regards to training and all that kind of stuff, um, as far as, in my opinion, the staff have got it spot on. If there's any knocks and niggles to sort out incredibly quickly, we've got the right amount of rest. Yet we're also getting something that is incredibly crucial in the sport, which is getting game time and getting an opportunity so everybody becomes familiar with what we're doing. I, I suppose when you do factor in the five-week break, it is it, it doesn't seem that hectic as a schedule. In conversation with a few of the other guys and the other clubs, and not naming names, but they are quite frustrated in the lack of the lack of game time. So it's a balance, right? Justin, moving on, and I suppose to wrap it up, I guess I'd like to get your thoughts then on the upcoming game against the Lions, the Chicago Lions this weekend. Great guy, great team. They're looking at building their own infrastructure for possible expansion in 2019, maybe 2020. So they have their own grand ambitions. And I mean, they're last year, I think they won the Midwest D1 Championship. So they've got a very good squad as is. How are things shaping up? What's, are you hoping to get some involvement? Uh, we haven't got a team squad list up just yet, but obviously going to keep positive for it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> regards to the game itself, we're looking, we're highly excited about it. We want to go out there and play our game. Mm. We're at home, sixth game now. We want to show what we can do. Again, we want to we want to sh- please the home crowd. Let's get some minutes under our belt, really have a crack at it and make it a special occasion for everyone involved with it. As you say, they have grand ambitions to get into the franchise 2019. Mm-hmm. So this will be a good good taster for them to see what, what they're coming up against. 
as well as it'll give us an indication this year of the level that they'll be at and possibly what they could be at next year. So I did wrap up the interview with Justin at this stage. Um, for me, it's clear that when you speak to somebody like Justin, he's got a great outlook on how the game should be played. I think that kind of stems from his time spent playing rugby in not just Ireland and England, where it's a very attritional style of rugby, but also his period when he spent in Christchurch, New Zealand, where the style of rugby is very much different. There's a huge emphasis on keeping the ball alive in play and running it when you can. And of course, then it's not as attritional. So at the age of 22, his rugby intelligence is quite impressive, probably more so than a lot of players who've been playing the game for a long time but have been stationed in one region and have been subject to the ways of uh, thinking that's been kind of common in that one area, if you like. Justin did say that as the season progresses, he will come back on to the podcast for another episode and he will happily talk about how the game's gone in the weekends gone by. And yeah, so if you have any questions, comments for Justin, please do get him into myself. I'm on Twitter at at Kigsgown, that's C-I-G-S-G-O-W-A-N. Or you can find me at Gmail, so that's counterrookpod at gmail.com. So if you have any comments, any questions, anything at all, please feel free to contact me that way. And of course, guys, um, it would go a long way if you could possibly... uh, like review subscribe share this podcast with your friends um been really fun so far doing this podcast and with that i'll say thank you very much for listening to episode 11 of counter rock pod and i will catch you guys in the near future all right bye-bye